From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. Just when we thought this year couldn't get any more intense, it did. After serving 27 years on the United States Supreme Court, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away last Friday, leaving an important vacancy with just a little over a month until the presidential election. It didn't take long for the battle over the nomination to begin. The Senate battle over Justice Ginsburg's vacant seat is shaping up to be absolutely brutal. Republican leaders say they're ready to move forward with the confirmation by election day. Democrats say voters should decide who chooses the new justice. The GOP drumbeat to act fast grew louder today. I hope it happens before the election. There's really no reason to wait. Election day is now 42 days away, exactly the amount of time it took for Ginsburg herself to get confirmed. We have an obligation under the Constitution. Senate leader Mitch McConnell didn't commit to a timeline today. He led the charge to block President Obama's nominee eight months before an election. CBS News reporter Lisa Cordes is referring to Obama's 2016 nomination of Merrick Garland that was created by the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. Republicans did not hold a vote for Garland, waiting for the next incoming president to make a nomination. So what is the difference between then and now? What's the rule? What does history tell us about the process of filling a vacancy? Imagine that one of Franklin Roosevelt's nominees was confirmed the day that he was nominated. I mean, it was literally hours, you know, and, and that's how long the process lasted. So the Senate has the authority to do it however they choose, and they do have options for handling in, in different ways under different circumstances. That's Thomas Jipping, Deputy Director of Heritage's Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Jipping spent 15 years on the staff of Senator Orrin Hatch, including several as his chief counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Jipping has developed a national reputation among both liberals and conservatives as a true expert in the federal judiciary. Today, he will walk through what history can tell us about how this nomination process should proceed. Our conversation right after this short break. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Louie, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Tom, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Well, thanks for having me. So Election Day is a little over a month away, and I was wondering if, historically speaking, if the United States has confirmed a Supreme Court justice in this short amount of time before. Uh, Yes, they have. Um, I think in the last few decades, as the process has become a little bit kind of longer and more complicated, the the time has you know lengthened i mean there's 
everything from the the White House has to do their vetting. The Judiciary Committee has, you know, a 50-page questionnaire. The American Bar Association does an evaluation. There's an FBI background check. I mean, those things do take time, but um, it's certainly possible to do a, a thorough and efficient job. Um, Justice Ginsburg's confirmation back in 1993 was 42 days between nomination and confirmation. Um, and I think the thing to point out there is there, you know, it had been much longer since Ginsburg had been before the Judiciary Committee. In other words, she was appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals in 19, I believe it was 1980, and didn't appear again until she was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1993. The people who President Trump is considering for this vacancy have been before the Judiciary Committee in the last two or three years. So they should be much more familiar to the committee. And so, you know, you said 42, was it 42 or 43 days for Ginsburg? Is mm-hmm. is that around the regular time or has there even been shorter amounts well, of time I, than that? I, oh, there's been shorter times than that. Uh, John Paul Stevens, appointed by uh, President Ford back in 1975, took 19 days. Um, wow. But the more recent ones, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, were more like, you know, 65 to 85 days. But, you know, controversies can be created, controversies which are not real, which are uh, fake, but they're created for the purpose of drawing out the process. So, you know, it depends on a lot of different factors. If you're determined to kind of drag out the process and make it take longer, um, it's possible to do so. Uh, But the Judiciary Committee and the full Senate can do a thorough uh, confirmation process, especially on a nominee who had been before them just in the last couple of years. Um, in this period of time, I believe. So then I'm wondering then, what's the precedent for filling this vacancy right now? Would choosing not to fill the vacancy be unprecedented? Well, I think the first, the question before that though is, um, is there such a thing as a precedent for how to do this? Uh, we're, We're talking about that right now, but every vacancy and every nomination is different. There is no set prescription for how to fill a Supreme Court vacancy. The, the, the Senate has handled Supreme Court nominations at least a dozen different ways over the years, depending on the circumstances. And those circumstances are radically different from one nomination to the next. So, you know, looking at how it was done in the past, necessarily in different circumstances, that, that is interesting and it can be relevant, but it's certainly not binding. It's certainly not controlling as to how the Senate has to do its job today. The the Constitution just gives the Senate the power of advice and consent, but it does not tell the Senate how uh, to exercise that power in an individual instance. That's up to the Senate. So I don't think we should put too much stock in the way things have been done in the past. Um, the, The point is how it should be done today talking about how things have been done in the past that brings up a particular situation that I think everybody's it's on everybody's mind right now so I'm still going to ask you about that and that's the situation with Merrick Garland can Mm -hmm. you for the sake of you know getting this on the record explain how that was 
a different situation? Sure. Justice Antonin Scalia passed away unexpectedly on February 16, 2016. Um, one week later, on February 23rd, the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, they were the majority, uh, sent a letter to Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and said that for two reasons they were not going to hold a hearing on a nominee until uh, after the next election or after the next inauguration day. Those two reasons were that, number one, there was divided government. Different parties controlled the Senate and the White House. And the second was that we were definitely going to get a new president. That was President Obama's last year, his second term. We didn't know who was going to get elected, but we did know that it was going to be a new president. Um, those were the two things specifically mentioned in that letter dated February 23rd, 2016. So those were the essential reasons why the Republicans chose to handle the Scalia vacancy the way they did. And I would point out, they, they stated that position right away before President Obama made a nomination. So he nominated Merrick Garland knowing that Garland would not be considered. Now, that didn't mean he didn't, they shouldn't have done it necessarily, but he knew that the Senate was not going to consider Merrick Garland and nominated him anyway. So I think President Obama bears at least some responsibility for what happened. Neither one of those circumstances is true today. There's not divided government. The same party controls the Senate and the White House. And perhaps even more importantly, this is President Trump's first term. So, again, we don't know who's going to win the election, but the incumbent might well uh, continue in office. So, um, you know, you, somebody could say, I don't think those two reasons are persuasive or whatever, but the fact is the two reasons that, uh, that justified Republicans putting Merrick Garland on hold – uh, do not exist today. So there is absolutely, it doesn't make any sense to say that a different situation has to be handled the same way. It just doesn't make sense. Hmm. So Democrats have threatened revenge if someone's confirmed by packing the court. Can you explain what that means? By packing the court, they mean enlarging the Supreme Court, making it have more than nine seats, and then filling those extra seats with liberal justices. An awful lot of things have to happen for that uh, to be successful. Congress decides how many judges there are in the judicial system, including on the Supreme Court. It's been nine since the Civil War. It's um, a long time. It, it's, a very, it's a very long time, and there's absolutely no objective reason why it has to change. But Congress does determine how many uh, justices there would be, uh, but they, and they change that by legislation. So right now, uh, Republicans could filibuster a bill that would enlarge the Supreme Court. So what, what Democrats are going to have to do, and this only works if Democrats win the Senate and win the White House this year in the election, they would have to find some way to change the filibuster rule and abolish the, the legislative filibuster so that they could pass a bill by a simple majority um, to add justices to the Supreme Court. Then the next president, if, if in this scenario that would be Joe Biden, 
he would have to then make nominations to those extra seats, and the Senate would have to confirm. I mean, that's, what, four or five different planets that have to line up in order to do this. It's easy for them to say, well, we'll just pack the court. Well, there's an awful lot that has to happen, and along the way, they would they would abolish the legislative filibuster, which wouldn't be limited to the courts. That would be abolishing the legislative filibuster, which has been the single most defining feature of the Senate for over 200 years across the board. Now, this is not the first time that packing the court has been threatened. Franklin Roosevelt threatened it in 1937. He didn't like the way the Supreme Court was deciding cases about his New Deal. So he said, uh, in fact, he sent to Congress a draft bill that would expand the courts and he would, you know, appoint new justices in order to get decisions that he wanted. And it was Democrats in the Senate that rejected it. Democrats did. Hmm. His own party. They said that trying to manipulate the Supreme Court in this way uh, to kind of neutralize the justices you don't like by overwhelming them with extra justices who you do would destroy the independence of the judiciary. And Democrats in 1937 said no legislation, no political goals are worth that. Uh, You ought to do it the regular way. Maybe that's slower, but you ought to fill the vacancies as they come up naturally. So, you know, we've been around this block before, and the Democratic Party back then got it right, and they they acted on some principles. The Democratic Party today, at least those who are threatening this, aren't as principled, it seems to me. And even Justice Ginsburg herself was against packing the court. She made the point that in an interview with uh, Nina Totenberg that, you know, n- nothing would look more political or destroy the sort of perception of legitimacy of the court than trying to do that. Um, nothing is worth that. The, the judicial, the independence of our judiciary has been, I think William Rehnquist once called it, the crown jewel of our judicial system is that independence from the political branches, and this would completely destroy that. Talking about our given situation today, what are some other consequences of a packed court? Well, it, it, it's kind of like the Rubicon that hasn't yet been crossed. Uh, once you would do that, essentially what it would be saying is the, the, the politicians can manipulate the judicial branch until they get what they want. Um, it would be it would be a greater step toward completely politicizing the judiciary than anything that has happened in American history. And that's why I gave you the example of when this came up during the Roosevelt administration. If ever there was a, a temptation to do it, Roosevelt, after the 1936 election, had overwhelming majorities in the Senate and the House. It would have been a cakewalk to do that, you know, if they'd wanted to. Um, but some state, you know, some some folks are more statesmen than politicians, I guess, and stood up and said, the the integrity of our very system of government, our very judicial system, is more important than anything else. And that would, again, that would be completely destroyed. And once it's destroyed, you can't get it back. I can't help but think as well that this election, 
more than any others. We may not know the outcome. And we would then look to the Supreme Court. Well, it, it's there's a lot of open questions about how we're doing anything this year. Um, you know, one question is how, how are they going to do a, a Supreme Court confirmation hearing? We, we've watched them on television doing it the normal way, but uh, but then we've seen hearings being done virtually. You know, more recently, said how they're going to do a confirmation. We don't know. Uh, That's we don't funny. know how the outcomes are going to be affected by the, the, the process, the way that we have to do things under these circumstances. You know, the, the Supreme Court has, has shown that it's a very resilient institution, whether it's doing oral arguments in a different way or during 2016 when they were short one justice, they made some changes and, and you know, I, th- I think did an admirable job of what they're supposed to do under the circumstances. But I don't think we should be intentionally making it more difficult for the judicial branch to play its part uh, in our system of government. And that's that's what some of these really bizarre ideas would be doing. Uh, For short-term political gain, they would be intentionally doing things that would make the judiciary, that would almost neutralize the judiciary in its very important role uh, in our system of government, and uh, and I don't think any any political goal is worth that. You and I have had conversations in the past where I've asked you what exactly does you know a Senate confirmation hearing look like, and what does the current environment how you know how has social media changed that, or how has the news media changed that? I never once thought I would have to have this conversation with you and we would be talking about what is it going to look like during a pandemic. Now, I I would emphasize there doesn't have to be a confirmation hearing before the Judiciary Committee at all. Just, I mean, there there likely will be one because there are certain senators on the committee who want the cameras to be on them. But the uh, Judiciary Committee didn't hold any hearings until the early part of the 20th century and they confirmed more than a dozen Supreme Court justices during the 20th century with no hearings. Uh, there were justices like uh, William Douglas, who they held a hearing, but he didn't even attend his own hearing. So, mm-hmm. it, it, again, there's no prescription, there's no mandate for how this has to be done. Um, uh, there's... In my view, and I've I've either worked on the Judiciary Committee with on five hearings or been part of this process from the private sector before that. In my view, uh, there's virtually nothing that comes out during a con- uh, a face-to-face uh, confirmation hearing that is unique, that is special information. The, all the information the Senate could possibly need for making a, a good decision about confirmation, they can get in other ways. So I, I just want to say that there's no you know, magic formula and there's no absolute requirement uh, that there be a hearing like that. Yeah, I think that's um, a really good point to make, especially for young people today who've only been exposed to what happened with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, where there was yeah, so much scrutiny right. and so much time in front of the committee that, that it doesn't I mean, have imagine, to be that way. Imagine that one of Franklin Roosevelt's nominees was confirmed the day that he was nominated. 
He didn't wow. even have a hearing. I mean, it was literally hours, you know, and, and that's how long the process lasted. So yeah. uh, the, the Senate it has the authority to do it however they choose, and, uh, and they do have options for handling in, in different ways under different circumstances. All right, Tom, in conclusion, to wrap this up, President Trump has said he's going to nominate a woman. Um, and we know who those women are because President Trump has released lists of his potential nominees ahead of time, which is something that doesn't usually happen. Can you tell us just a little bit about uh, maybe some of these women, a few? Well, the, the list uh, is now very long. He, he He's actually done it in four different kind of tranches. He he gave us 11 names early in 2016, 10 more, you know, the next year, five more, and then he gave us 20 more uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, And there's many women, including women who President Trump has himself uh, appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals. He he has a very deep bench uh, to draw from in choosing a, a good Supreme Court nominee. I think even though there's 44 names on the total list, I think there's only two or three that are under serious scrutiny at this point. And I think the leading contender is probably Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who is on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. And the Seventh Circuit includes Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana. She uh, has her own chambers in Indiana. Um, She's she, she's very well known as a scholar. She taught at Notre Dame for about 15 years, and she specialized in her scholarship in areas that d- relate directly to what appellate judges are supposed to do. She's written an awful lot about precedent, about constitutional interpretation, about how courts should understand and read statutes. These are these are exactly the kinds of issues that appellate judges, including the Supreme Court, deal with all the time. So her her knowledge and her record of having studied that, and she she clerked for two uh, just outstanding, two of the best uh, federal judges in America. Uh, right out of law school, she clerked for Judge Lawrence Silberman on the D.C. Circuit, and then for Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court. And you can't get better training for having a, a traditional principle judicial philosophy that's consistent with the way the judiciary is. Uh, is designed. I think the and I think the other, I guess if you want to call it leading candidate or at least that's been talked about the most, um, is Judge Barbara Lagoa. She's a judge in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eleventh Circuit, which covers the southeast part of the country. She herself is in Florida. Um, she, she her background is both in private practice. She was a federal prosecutor, and then on. Florida state courts. She was a judge on the Florida uh, Court of Appeals and then more recently a justice on the Florida Supreme Court. Um, And I'll have to say, you know, President Clinton appointed a couple of members of the Florida Supreme Court to to the federal bench back in the 90s, and they were awful. They were the most political activist judges that a president has appointed. Uh, Justice Lagoa, um, is very, very different than that and is no doubt a breath of fresh air for the Florida Supreme Court. You know, I look at biographies and the older I get, the younger all of these people, you know, become. I mean, she was born in 1967 and uh, went to Florida International University for her BA and then to Columbia for her law degree. So 
Um, those are just two uh, very well qualified sitting appeals court judges that President Trump can look to. As I say, he has a very very deep bench. It's a it's a nice problem to have to have a, a lot of great candidates to choose from. Well, Tom, thank you so much for spending some time walking us through our our current situation. And President Trump said he was going to let us know who his pick is by Friday or Saturday. So we shall see. And maybe we'll have you back after to talk more about it. Glad to do it. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And if you're looking to share this podcast, which we would love, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, our Heritage Explains Facebook page, the Heritage Foundation Instagram page, and Heritage YouTube page. We put our episodes everywhere to make it easier for you to listen and share. Tim is up next week. We'll see you then. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher with editing by John Pop.